Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Digital Nordic Creatives, a podcast that informs, entertains, and inspires designers to share knowledge and promote each other. Good afternoon to all of our listeners. Today's episode will be extraordinary because the Hygge design team decided to bring the studio at Bulgaria Web Summit 2018 and spread Hygge and knowledge from here. Two people who can properly spread UX knowledge are Dave Hogg and Florence Okoy, who I have invited here today. Dave and Florence, welcome to Digital Nordic Creatives. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Except for Dave and Florence, I have my two UX enthusiasts, Tanyo and Elias, who will be extra curious and ask some questions in this panel of discussions. Tanyo and Elias, welcome. Welcome. So happy to be here. Yeah. I'd like to start by asking Dave and Florence, how did you get started in user experience and what's your background? Maybe you can start with Dave? Sure. Um, It was not an intentional career path, unlike some of you who are in school for this. Um, My training, I'm an applied psychologist um, for my training. I was a professor of psychology in Louisiana, um, and I was doing research, um, not even in a related field. Um, And the university decided to experiment with online learning uh, in 1996, 1997. And they chose an introductory psychology class as one of the experimental classes. Um, And it was a fascinating failure um, because we had none of the tools, none of the mechanisms to do this. But at the end of the semester, I realized that the way people read and learned and understood information as a single solo experience in a virtual environment was very different than the classroom experiences. And so I shifted my psychology research to study more um, along the lines of what we would say now as information processing in a, in a digital environment. Um, and by 1999, the, the, the internet had become like the most popular thing around. Um, and I realized as a researcher that there was a lot of crap on the internet. <laughs> And there were very few social scientists who were actually sort of studying and trying to figure out how to make it better. And so I left academia and I went to California uh, and started to pursue a design career. So I switched right in the middle of things. So that was my path in. The whole field of UX didn't even really exist at the time. My first job role, we called ourselves an information architect. Um, and then I, was an, then I was an information designer, and then I was an interaction designer, and then I was a UX designer. And so even the title <laughs> yeah. changed over time. Okay. Um, and so that's how I came to be here today. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, similarly non-linear. So I studied physics at uni. I wanted to go okay. into um, theoretical physics um, for research, but um, I needed money and I couldn't figure out the one thing I really wanted to study for four years for a PhD. So I thought, okay, go into the real world. Um, And I learned C++ in in university. So what you do in theoretical physics, because your actual experiments will be way too expensive. Um, So you need to do them on the computer first. Um, As I got into development, um, was initially trained as a Java software programmer, um, and kind of put into like a graduate role at a National Grid, which is like a utilities company in the UK. Um, but the way it happened, I was kind of put more in the research, the user, ex- it wasn't really the UX team, that's not really what it was, but the work that was done there was more about 
speaking directly to engineers, understanding processes and business processes, and using that to create good software and good apps and, and whatnot. Um, and then from there, that's kind of how I discovered there's a real name for it, rather than just messing around. Uh, it's called user experience design. And I thought, this is really cool. It's complicated. It's interesting. It's always changing. And then from there, I've just kind of kept on as a UX designer. Okay. So you both mentioned different job titles and job roles. Mm -hmm. Did the task that you had to do also change through time? Of course, technology is developing so quickly, so I can imagine that it did. But how did your tasks evolve with the change of your title? Right, right. Do you want to? Oh, well, I mean, in my case, not so much. Um, because at my very first job, I was in a kind of innovation team. Um, and we were allowed to try any and all techniques. Um, mm. And because of the scale of the company, there hadn't there hadn't been much embedding of this continual interaction with users. Um, and actually, by the time I sort of left uh, that company, user experience design and user-centered design had already at least the concept was beginning to trickle down through business anyway. Um, so I often found that actually uh, the process hasn't, my process hasn't really changed. Um, I think it's, there are different layers, but that depends on the industry I'm working in. So I started in utilities, I'm currently working mm -hmm. in, in a museum. Um, and so the, the only thing that's really changed is probably, it's actually understanding different business processes um, But, but again, even there, the techniques are really kind of the same, you know, it's, yeah. it's in-depth research, it's taking the time to read and talk to experts and people who know what they do and making sure they're in contact with users who know what they need, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you recognize some? Oh, oh, yeah, things? yes, definitely. Um, you know, in, in retrospect, from, from the perspective of UX today and looking back, it's easy to say there were things that I was doing then that we consider part of UX today. Um, but there were far fewer aspects of user-centered design and user experience design that we were doing. So when my first job title was as an information architect, the reason was in the late 90s, we were still just trying to organize all of the information on the web. Our, our, our concern was findability, right? There's a lot of stuff out there, but we've just thrown it into a big pile. Um, and so there was a lot of talk of traditional library science activities, so taxonomies and categorization schemes and classification systems, just so people could find things. There was no CSS, there was no JavaScript, there was no responsive web design, there was no smartphone, people's monitors, the resolution was still 640 by 480. Um, you know, so that was the only thing you had to design for was a very small computer screen and everything fit on it. And as technology changed, the scope of our work began to change, which is why we became information designers, because there was more emphasis on the actual interface itself and not just the, the structure of the content. Mm -hmm. We became interaction designers because JavaScript and CSS were introduced, and now suddenly people weren't just reading things on the internet. They were using applications, they were doing things, and it became about productivity and task-oriented and goal-directed behavior. And then we began to call ourselves experience or user experience designers because it became obvious that we were now working on a myriad of tool sets 
that were working as like a constellation of products and services together. And it wasn't just online. It was it was people on the phone, in the store, on the computer, on a bus or a train. And all of these different systems were part of much larger connected services. Um, and so research became more important and accessibility became more important and all these other things that we just sort of take for granted as part of being UX today were gradually introduced as our technical capabilities became greater and greater over time. Mm -hmm. You mentioned now a lot of systems being integrated with each other and that was very much what you also talked about uh, in your speeches about complexity of systems and how we can use some methods, let's say, or theories to help simplify them or even just understand them or cope with the uh, chaosity of them, if we can say, <laughs> say it in that way. <laughs> so can you talk some more about why do you think this topic is so important to be talked about? Sure. I'm going to defer to Florence first because, well, because I think it's, well, I think the most important thing is to, is that you first have to understand mm -hmm. that we're talking about very expansive, complex systems whose mm -hmm. behavior is not predictable or mm -hmm. easily understood. Um, and you've got a fantastic theoretical perspective on helping people understand the complexity of the complexity. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, you can't see this, it's on a podcast, but I am blushing a little bit now. Um, um, yeah, so I guess why is it important to appreciate complexity? Well, so I, I guess I come from, I guess, more of a critical perspective. So actually, it, my interest in it first came because I was just tired about a lot of the myths and narratives that particularly uh, consumerist Western cultures have about progress. Um, and, and this had trickled down into the way we talk about technology. And what was unfortunate was that this sort of delusion that we'd created was actually impeding a real understanding even of how we work, yet alone our technology itself. And that's something I always try to make clear, like these critical perspectives about design or about technology, they're not there just to be difficult. It's actually meant to help us make better technology. And that's why I think it's so important to appreciate complexity in the sense of what A, what it is, obviously, um, and how it arises and how it's absolutely inescapable. I mean, it's, it's built in from the fact that you're making something for people and people are very different and they change a lot. It's a, it arises from the fact that you're building in a particular environment. Um, and if you look at what science tells us about the way the environment changes, that's something that humans cannot control at all. Um, and yeah, so for me, that's that's really why I think it's, it's so important because so many also from everything from, you know, financial crashes to the fact that Facebook suddenly, who would have thought, became a tool for like spreading um, extremist views. A lot of that, a lot of the surprise that we have in the face of this comes about from a lack of an underestimation of complexity and of where it comes from um, and why it exists and why it will always exist. Right, right. Um, so as an, as an applied psychologist, I have always been very, very pragmatic about things. It's like it's important to understand it, but I think it's equally important to understand what to do with it or about it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I was never fully comfortable in a research academic environment, because it was all about very, very deep understanding, and other people can go do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, that always made me very, almost agitated. I was like, oh, but I want to be the one to do the stuff about it. Mm -hmm. I want to understand it, mm -hmm. but I also want to do something about it. Um, and, and so in the, in the presentation today, one of the things that I tried to emphasize, um, as Florence just said, complexity is not inherently a bad thing. We have to understand how it happens. We have to understand what benefits it may offer us. Um, complicated, that's not such a good thing. Right? Complications we can do something about. Mm -hmm. Complexity we have to learn what to, how to work with it. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to complication, we can talk about how do we fix it. Um, and then when we get into the chaos stuff, it's like, well, that's just the fun things now. Um, and that, that's the best unpredictability. Uh, and, and so that's always been my focus is, is okay, so we, we have to understand it, but we have to have a mechanism to cope with it or to adapt to it or to incorporate it. Mm -hmm. And so that was the emphasis I tried to get across today. Great responses and, and still very insightful, even though I heard the speeches. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the solutions that you suggest uh, on how to handle complexity of systems uh, in UX design? I mean, we can right. never have all the solutions, but we can start somewhere. <laughs> um, you know, just, just at an individual level, I think it's really important for, and designers tend to be good at this, um, but it's okay to be wrong. Um, it's okay to not have a single optimal best solution. Um, because most of the things that I did a workshop about designing for wicked problems mm -hmm. um, and the, the, the goal of that workshop was basically to, to point out how many problems there are for which there isn't a single solution. Um, that it's a, it's a continuum of good or bad and where you are on that continuum will vary based on time and context and person and need. Um, and so what works sometimes is not going to work another. Mm -hmm. um, and so don't get frustrated by that, right? Um, just take your big picture view, do the best that you can, understand that things are going to change and that there is no end to what it is that you are working on. Something is going to arise in the future, a, a social change or a technical change or a legal and regulatory change, whatever it is, and you're going to have to adapt to it. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are if you're frustrated by by not feeling finished, um, then take a different uh, perspective on your work, right? And it's like how do I how do I build and improve versus how do I finish? Yeah, I think yeah, in terms of agreement, it's it's empowering people to be, feel okay that all you're doing is building and constantly improving. Um, some of the techniques that I. I'm, I often talk about design jams because I think they're quite practical and quite a fun way um, of actually putting quite, like actually quite advanced like design theory um, and service design theory and, and even business theory into practice. Um, but if you, if you kind of talk like on the theoretical level, it seems really airy-fairy or just too complex. And certainly for me, I, I go to conferences, I'm like, okay, this is great, but where's the funding coming to do this? Whereas... The nice thing about kind of the, the jam or the yeah the design jam approach is that it absolutely insists first of all that 
it's low fidelity, so it is a time for people from different um, specialties and skills to come together um, and, and use play as a way of exploring deep um, approaches, actually. I don't even really like saying solutions, but often I have to say solutions. Um, and again, it kind of comes back to this idea of incorporating complexity into what can often be quite a linear, even with agile methodology, it can still be quite a linear process that of you know, product development. Um, and so by actually incorporating that complexity that comes from the way users and user systems interact with your product, Mm-hmm. It helps in so many ways. It can help you both start thinking about your product plan. It can help you at least get an appreciation for what could potentially be changing. It obviously, it can never predict what's going to change, but it puts you immediately in that mindset of, oh, okay, I may well have designed this interface or this architecture to deal with this current solution, but just talking to the kind of people I've thought will use this product, mm-hmm. I've now realised there's so much better. There's these variations even within this group that suggests that this feature that I've designed for this particular use case could potentially do something really interesting because of the variations of the very people I'm actually making something for. And so that's why I really encourage people to do like co-design exercises with actual users um, and with as people from as like as much as varied um, a skill set as possible. Okay. Yeah, and to, to build on that, we at, at Google we have design sprint mm-hmm. methods that we use, which are similar to the design jams. Um, and I mean, almost everything that she just said falls into that very broad category of user centered design. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to take the time for the research and you have to take the time for the exploration and um, you've probably seen the double diamond method of diverge, converge, diverge, converge. Um, that's just, a, it's a really nice graphical way of saying abductive reasoning, mm-hmm. right? Let's, yeah. let's yeah. generate as many possible potential solutions, let's identify the best, let's dig in, explore, and then repeat that process. And, and so it's not it's not a funnel to a solution. It's a it's a continual oscillation mm-hmm. with periods of progress that come with each of those oscillations. Um, yeah, so take the time to do the research. Take the time to work with the people. Take the time to explore the ideas. Be okay with taking the time to iterate mm-hmm. um, and follow the user-centered methods. Mm-hmm. And in user-centered methods, I remember that you mentioned the jobs-to-be-done framework in your speech. Um, do you use that framework in practice uh, at your work currently at the museum? Yes, um, it's it's interesting actually. It's probably been more useful in the museum context than actually in any almost any other context I've worked in. So yeah, for, for background, I work at the Natural History Museum in London, um, and we have say over five million visitors a year. And so right then and there, you can see with the scale of people who are coming through the physical building, and this is just the physical building, we're not even talking about people who are interacting with our digital products. Mm-hmm. Some of the techniques and methods that might have been okay for me to use in say, uh, say a smaller company or within a much more constrained or confined industry, um, it we're looking at kind of the timescales and deadlines, it was just like, you know, I, this isn't practical, to be honest. We have so, such a wide range of people, a wide range of needs. And, you know, particularly in the museum context, it becomes very clear, you might create a persona, mm-hmm. but actually that persona 
could completely change depending actually even on which section of the museum they're in or how they're interacting with your products. So I found the Jobs to be Done framework really helpful because it was a, it was a nice way of encapsulating like this macroscopic view in something we could still work on because mm -hmm. that's often the temptation that when you're dealing with these really complex systems, you're just like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. I'm just going to see my, like, my single persona, user journeys, done. That's it. Yeah. Um, but you have to account for this microscopic view because that's reality. And so that's why I found the Just to Be Done framework so helpful because it was, it was enabling us to really look at what are the actual overall needs that people are having and using that as a focus for then drilling into almost like every section of how they accomplish that need, drilling into that, then perhaps using the more persona-based approach. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a really nice balance between that macroscopic view and then the microscopic, like user um, yeah. level view. Mm -hmm. It sounds, I mean, I think one of the things that, that you're doing and, and what you're sort of what you're saying, something that, that I would advise, I, I'm, I'll let you agree or not, um, to students is to develop a very broad skill set and to not become attached to a particular method or a particular process because we have to adapt our methods to the, the circumstance in which we are designing and the people for whom we are designing and the outcomes that we are trying to design to help them for. Um, so jobs to be done is, is a good match for you in this context mm -hmm. at this time. Mm -hmm. But if you found yourself in a different situation, it may be a different set of methods and design processes that would be most appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I find sometimes um, designers will become very attached to a particular process and they will say, I work this way, like I see it in their portfolios. Mm -hmm. This is how I work. And one of my questions in interviews is, how do you work in different situations? Are you, do you try to force this method to every problem that you're facing? Or do you choose your tools based on the problem that you are solving? Um, you know, there's, there's the saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> Right? And um, that goes and back to the complexity of the problem. Exactly. And we have to adapt. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. We have to adapt. And so we need a broad range of skills and methods in order to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that. What do you think, guys? Um, I think it's really cool. Um, you bring up some good uh, points. Um, I had a question, actually. Uh, it's really interesting to hear about your journey, how you almost converted into this UX religion. Uh, what do you think was the turning point of UX becoming so big as it is? I, I think that I think that there were two things, um, and unfortunately, I think I'm infused with a bit of capitalism here in this in this answer. Um, UX became valuable to businesses when they began to understand the value of design, um, and the people who were doing that type of work at the time had many many different titles. And businesses didn't understand what all those titles were and what the practice was. And UX became a convenience as a title. And if you stamped yourself with a UX logo and said, I do UX, it suddenly became easier um, for, for companies to understand that UX meant design that generates revenue. Um, and so it became possible for people who did a whole bunch of different things to just say, I do UX. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and so suddenly a lot of people began using the label. Um, and I, and I think that the, the value of the label was more about employability. Um, and initially, so we're talking six, seven years ago. Um, I think now that we've been doing it and we've been in the companies and we've been sort of struggling to help them understand that UX is not pushing pixels around, that UX is a deep understanding of the systems and the people and the outcomes and the contexts. Um, that we're getting a better understanding now of UX than we had seven years ago when people started to use the labels. What would you say uh, should the stamp represent, the UX stamp, from both of your points of view? There really isn't a clear definition for what UX is, but in your opinion, what is, what is it? It's a, it's, a, it's a holistic approach to design. Um, I'm one of those people who gets frustrated when UX, UI are bunched together and spoken yes. together as if they're the same thing. Because user interface design is one small part of UX, um, U and UX is more than design. It is research, and it is content, um, and it is experimentation um, and exploration. But UX is also not just owned by the design team. Um, when we're talking about UX, uh, the end experience is impacted by design as much as it is impacted by business decisions and by technology decisions. And so the engineers on a team may make a technology decision that slows an entire product down by 300 milliseconds per step, right? Like a, just a, an almost imperceptible period of time. But in aggregate, they end up slowing the whole product down for many, many seconds, and it feels slow. And you may have an extremely well-crafted and valuable product that just drags, and the experience is poor. And it's not about the design, and it's not about the ability to fulfill a need. It's because we chose an incorrect technology. Or we may make a business decision that is doing something with the product at the cost of the end user, and it degrades the experience. Um, and, and so UX is not really a design thing. We've, we've just become like the self-appointed police of UX. Um, it's, it's everyone on the team owns the end experience. Um, but when it comes to understanding people and the context and their goals and having empathy and understanding their expectations and their feelings um, and what they what they want out of something that's our contribution mm -hmm. right? but it's it's a holistic view there's not one thing that any person who touches ux can say this is the definition <laughs> wow it's it's a complex yeah, system. It's, yeah, it's, it's a complex system, system. <laughs> yeah I could no, totally, totally agree with that. And in fact, it's funny because talking about context, I mean, I often, if I'm speaking to, say, a development team, I rarely call what I do design, I call it engineering, um, because I know at least that's the, the language that really better explains what I'm trying to do. And I love what you said about, like, experimentation and exploration. I mean, only, like, I then think, like, maybe the other aspect is facilitation. Um, it's that sense of, okay, like, there isn't anything in particular one thing in particular, as you said, that we, we do, um, but maybe if there's something that perhaps 
I personally feel we can work a bit harder at. Um, it's being aware of our roles as ambassadors, as facilitators, actually. Um, certainly in the roles I've worked in, often the knowledge I have is infinitesimally small compared to what different people in different areas of the organisation know. What has improved the user experience actually just been getting people to talk to each other. <laughs> you know, oh, have you got the email of this person? Often, so often my job has come down to being the person who knows your dress book. Yes, yes, yes. Connecting. Yeah. connecting. When you talk about facilitating, what do you think about um, advocacy? the role as an advocate, um, because we serve as proxies for people who are not present. And I think that's a, another part of it. Uh, it sometimes gets us in trouble when, when we say, no, 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 because as a user advocate, this is what their experience may be. We are, we are always aware of the end user, um, whether or not we actually have to represent them or advocate for them depends upon the situation. Um, and I, I don't want to imply that I say no to engineers and product managers on a daily basis. I'm, I'm lucky I rarely have to say that, um, which means that when we do say it, you know, when we say, you know, really, this is not a good idea, um, we have to have the, the data um, to back that up. We have to be able to explain why. Um, it's one of the challenges that designers have is that sometimes we just, we know, we sense that it's not quite right, but we have to get, with practice, we have to get better at giving a very clear explanation of why mm. it is not right. Mm -hmm. Because if you just say, I don't like it, or it doesn't feel right, it's often a very difficult argument to make. Yes. Um, you have to be able to say why it is inappropriate or why it is not right. And, and I, worked, I worked with one of my managers many, many years ago who regularly said to people on the team, I don't mind if you come to me with a problem, but when you do, come also with a solution. And he's like, and it doesn't have to be the right one. I just want to know that you've thought about the problem enough to propose a solution. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes the proposed solution reveals the depth of our understanding of the problem. But if we just stand up in the room and raise our hand and yell and say, that's not right, don't do that. But we can't explain the problem and we don't have a proposed solution for it. Then all we've done is stand up and yell. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more and us as aspirants and UX enthusiasts will face many challenges where we have to do exactly that. Think of solutions. Do you have any good advices and practices or programs that you could suggest for our <laughs> listeners? <laughs> oh dear. Um, uh, well, it's a conversation. So this yeah. answer of really basic. One of the things that sounds really basic, but Medium is actually, I found, mm -hmm. invaluable lately mm -hmm. um, because I can just search for, so like right now at the museum, our big topic is wayfinding. How can we help people understand this space? Um, I can type that in uh, into Medium and I'm getting articles from all over the world. So um, there's a UX designer in Kiev who I currently that's all like, oh, help us out, because he has really amazing insights in how you can create uh, a navigatable uh, subway map using different languages, different uh, scripts. Again, wonderful, through the power of medium. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the other thing that I also find really helpful, um, and this is maybe betraying my kind of more academic theoretical background, um, is is a, is research, is academic research, mm-hmm. um, and it's not always necessary. But I I still feel sometimes that we as UX, especially as UX researchers, sometimes um, don't fully appreciate the scale of work that has often already been done. So mm-hmm. I mean I. I've noticed, for example, in my daily role, sometimes people say I'm working in a museum and obviously there's museum studies um, and people are kind of used to having to chide the UX, the resident UX designer because they're well, you know, have you actually read any research that's been done in museums? <laughs> and often I have to, and thankfully for me, I'd say, well, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, but, but it is, it's important to do that. Um, I often tell people, um, and everyone from uh, whether programmers to um, product owners, I often say, look, if your user experience researcher is not quoting something from sociology somewhere in their research, then I mean, be okay to challenge them. They might, you might not need it, but it's still good to show that you're aware that this is the kind of stuff they need to be aware of. That actually, in the timescales you have, you don't have the time or the money to do this kind of in-depth research. Mm-hmm. So go talk to people from your local university, talk to academics, talk to these people, because they have done that work. And yes, fine, they are not maybe doing it with the idea of coming up with a solution, but that's fine, that's your job, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So work with them. So that's what I would say. Medium, Twitter's been amazing, um, and uh, academia.edu, and there's some other like open access um, research um, repositories like ArcSide. I find that really helpful for understanding the limitations of machine learning and AI. Like, and, and just getting in touch with academics. Don't be shy, especially if you're actually saying, I'm doing this because I want to apply what you've discovered to mm-hmm. something practical that will help people. Mm-hmm. They'll only be flattered, although it may take a long time to get out of Yeah, I'll, I'll, I confess I sometimes have long email queues. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yes, to everything that, that she said. You know, the question would have been easier to answer 10 or 15 years ago when there were no formal academic programs for this type of design work. Mm-hmm. And people were coming from a variety of different backgrounds and places. And it was a lot about... It was more like an apprenticeship where you just sort of were working with people who did it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to point to any particular programs. I think if people are looking for a formal education in a degree-granting institution, be it a design school or a traditional university, um, you do your same due diligence and you study and you look at the efficacy and the outcomes of that program as you would for any degree, physics or psychology or chemistry or whatever. Um, and, and so find your program that way. Um, uh, it also, the online resources. Um, there's this little search engine called Google that <laughs> find a whole bunch of things. Um, and and with, the, with the machine learning that runs behind the scenes on that, you can put in bizarre combinations of terms and get remarkably accurate results. It's fascinating. Um, so that's also a good source of information. Networking, as you said, going to meetups, joining groups, things like um, the Interaction Design Association is extremely active around the world. Um, and there are, are UX groups um, that have regional conferences, you know, like um, UX London. Um, and, and they even name their conferences based on the city where that unit is based. Um, are great opportunities to learn from others. Uh, they have student rates. Many of these conferences have student scholarships to make it more uh, accessible for students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you get to meet the people who are doing the thinking, right? And to, to don't 
don't don't be a lone designer. Um, there somewhere, somewhere, and sometime, someone else has probably thought about it or worked on it, mm-hmm. written about it, or shared it. Um, and and as Florence said, you can contact them and you can read their stuff. And you know, many many designers are very open to having conversations with other designers, especially students. Um, and the other the other piece of advice I I really like to give to students is. If you have a different background, if you are coming from psychology or physics um, or finance, um, and you are are shifting your focus, you're changing your career, and you're moving into design, you're moving into UX or UX research, um, don't throw away your history. Mm-hmm. You you know things. You have an outlook and a perspective on things that can make you unique because you have a different background. And I think UX is filled with people who come from other fields. Um, and it's a diversity that has made UX as a practice more valuable. That people come in with an understanding of social systems and they come in with an understanding of mathematical modeling and optimization and, and they come in with an understanding of business um, mm-hmm. and yeah and so those those perspectives have value don't think that if you're shifting your focus that you need to throw away what you had previously learned leverage it make yourself unique with it great um, advice amazing <laughs> do you guys have any final questions or Comments. You pretty it's much now... covered everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, now or never. <laughs> so, I might have one though. Um, we talked about this. There's no single best solution. So for those listeners out there that has a project or a concept in mind, what would you suggest for them to the first thing to do if you have a concept that you want? Right. Um, as I said in the in the talk today, I think that the most important the, the most important three words that I use are identify, define, and frame. What is it that you are trying to solve, and what is the outcome you are trying to achieve? Operationally define it. Get the clearest definition of that that you can, because it will keep you and everyone else you work with focused. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a, a metric. It gives you a way to compare whether or not a new idea or a new possibility or an alternative solution is potentially valuable. And you have to frame it in the context of the person and the situation and the time. It's like the zeitgeist and the orgeist and the individual all sort of come together to understand that. Um, and when you do just those three things, it brings remarkable focus to what you're trying to do. Yeah, and, and again, that just comes out from talking to people, doing the research, um, even if it means going out onto the street and literally just getting people's, you know, what do you think when you hear this? Anything that you can do right. to frame what you think would be a solution is so valuable. Great insights. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I'm happy that you found found it fun. Um, It's also been a a lot of fun for us and for me personally to have you in this episode of Digital Nordic Creatives. Um, I wish you a safe trip back home. Uh, Looking forward to see you again sometime and follow you on the different social media and follow your work. Where can people actually find you? 
um, on social media for our listeners here. Sure. Um, I've been lucky enough to, to be in the in the web world uh, for long enough that when new things come along, I grab my name as a label. Okay. Um, and, and so the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. Um, and I am at Dave Hogue. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, and yes, you can find me on Twitter um, at Fine Okoye. So that's F-I-N-O-K-O-Y-E. Thank you again and uh, enjoy the rest of your stay in Sofia. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I've been your host, Jesse, and if you totally hated this episode, tell us why. But if you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, comment, and share the positive vibes. Till next time, see ya!